Hello, early birds. I'm Rosa, one of the hosts of the Sunday Morning Coffee House. Please join me, Beth, Mary, or Charlie to hear great folk music to help you wake up and start your day. Sunday Morning Coffee House, Sundays from 7 to 10 o'clock on WERU-FM, 89.9 in Blue Hill and 99.9 in Bangor, streaming all over the world at WERU. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Waterfront Concerts, presenting David Byrne and Tune Yards at Merrill Auditorium in Portland on Tuesday, September 11th, 358-9327, waterfrontconcerts.com. And it is just about 10 o'clock. You're listening to Community Radio. Stay tuned for Democracy Forum with your host, Ann Luther. Hey, good morning. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the second program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of most months. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about gerrymandering. Hey, what's the big deal? We'll talk about how redistricting has changed over the last 50 years, the emergence of extreme partisan gerrymandering, the court cases pending before the U.S. Supreme Court, and why all of this matters in Maine. We'll be taking your calls during the second half of the show, so stand by to join the conversation. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the show today. Let me introduce our guests. Joining us in the studio is Matt Doobie. Matt is the Assistant Professor of Computer Information Systems at the University of Maine in Augusta. He's also the co-author of several scholarly papers on geometry, geography, and demographics of redistricting. Welcome to the show, Matt. Glad to have you here. Glad to be here, too. Joining us on the phone is Elaine Kmark. Elaine is the Senior Fellow in Government Studies Program as well as the Director of the Center for Effective Public Management at the Brookings Institution. She's also a lecturer in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. We're very pleased to have you on the phone today. Elaine, welcome. Thank you. Some high-profile cases are working their way through the Supreme Court right now on gerrymandering. The 2020 census is about to get underway. The 2020 election is on the horizon already. And in terms of redistricting, this will be the most important election since the Republican wave election in 2010, when Republicans captured legislatures around the country, along with the right to draw legislative and congressional district maps. So lines are being drawn, both political and redistricting lines are being drawn in more ways than one. This is going to be a hot topic for the next four or five years. Um, Matt, let's put it to you first. Let's start with just the basics and ask you to define a couple of terms very briefly. We've got reapportionment, redistricting, and gerrymandering. Briefly, what do these terms mean? Okay, so uh, the process of creating... Uh, districts in the United States comes down to essentially your census every 10 years. 
Uh, the census is taken to find out where people live. Uh, so reapportionment is the idea of reassigning how many districts each state is given uh, to be able to draw. So, for instance, Maine has two versus California has 53, has something to do with their population. It isn't linear, but that's a different story. Uh, redistricting is uh, the process by which each state then takes those allocated districts and produces uh, what they're going to have, so where the lines actually become. Uh, so a lot of states have commissions that do this. Some states do this with their legislatures, so on and so forth. Gerrymandering is a term that comes from the early 1800s. Uh, refers to a governor of Massachusetts, Elbridge Gerry, who um, famously drew a district to uh, support his uh, own party uh, that looked sort of like a salamander. So we're start we are saddled with that term gerrymandering. Uh, so that's essentially a way that either a particular um, person, party, group of people, et cetera, gets advantaged in the redistricting process. Uh, do you want to add anything to that little primer, Elaine? No, that was that was a very good primer. And, and how has that process changed um, over time? I mean, certainly the census has been going on forever, but Elaine uh, – these redistricting commissions now have very sophisticated math and computer tools to help them draw the boundaries of these districts, which has changed the way it's done over the last 25 years, hasn't it? Well, it has, but I'll tell you that changes are not really as dramatic as you would think. I mean, anytime you talk to a member of Congress um, and get, get him or her talking about their district, you'd be amazed at the geographic specificity that these guys and gals know about their district. So, yes, the computers and technology does make the redistricting a little bit more more precise, but even in the days of pen and pencil, uh, they were pretty good at this, and they knew where their voters were and where their voters weren't, and were able to influence uh, primarily the state legislators to uh, draw districts that could favor them. And so that's the gerrymandering. And Elaine, can you draw a, a line between the sort of normal run-of-the-mill happens-all-the-time gerrymandering and what we'll call for this conversation extreme partisan gerrymandering? Well, I think you can probably call extreme partisan gerrymandering begins really in the 70s and in the 80s when we began drawing a majority minority districts. And when that started to happen, and there was a complex interaction between um, the desire of Republicans to put Democratic votes all in one district and the Voting Rights Act, which called for, you know, magnifying or increasing representation. So it was kind of an interesting um, coalition there. But we began to see these extraordinarily gerrymandered districts, like the one that just got thrown out of court in North Carolina, um, where it literally ran along a highway, um, like the Hispanic district in Illinois, which wanders all over the place. Um, and you began to you you really began to see some pretty odd shapes um, then. 
and now of course people are are looking looking at these with a new eye. Matt, let's. Um, I'm going to ask you to explain to people what my majority minority districts are and how that even came to be a thing. Okay, so a majority minority district is probably exactly what you think it is. It's a district that has the majority of its population, in, in essence, of a minority. Uh, so the lion's share of these things are built to um, essentially ensure that we have representation in Congress from various different minority groups. Uh, so the idea of where that comes from uh, goes back to the idea of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. Uh, so the Voting Rights Act comes out as essentially an answer to some of the policies, particularly in the southern United States about – or southeastern I should say, uh, where you would see a lot of voter suppression tactics and these sorts of things. Uh, but it doesn't just impact uh, them. Arizona is under the Voting Rights Act or has been recently. Actually, Roostick County was under the Voting Rights Act at one point because there were some voter suppression of native populations in Maine. So it's not something that's necessarily uh, just a southern thing, but a lot of states, some of the about eight states, I think, right now have to be pre-cleared in their congressional district drawing, and the lion's share of those are in the southeast. Okay, so let me get this straight: these minority, majority minority districts came up under the Voting Rights Act for the purpose of protecting the opportunity for minority voters to elect minority candidates. Is that right? That is correct. Uh, so as was just mentioned before by Elaine, uh, one of the things that happens out of that is it has to do with more my specialty. My specialty is in geography. Um, a lot of minority populations are clustered and the clustering of that naturally would produce some pretty lopsided districts that I would tend to call non-competitive. However, uh, the idea that democratic votes are clustered makes it hard for majority-minority districts to not favor the Republican Party over time. So it's something to kind of keep in mind. Is it something that looks like a heavily democratic agenda when you think about having minority representation? It's not necessarily – for the benefit, shall we say, of the Democratic Party in a way. So. Yeah, so help us with that. Help us draw that connection, Elaine, something that sort of started out protecting minority voters and protecting the rights of minority voters has led to extreme partisan gerrymandering, which maybe wasn't the outcome that people <laughs> hoped for. Well, I mean, I think you have to look at the change in time. Um, when this began, there was the assumption that only a majority African-American congressional district would elect an African-American representative to Congress. And that was one of the reasons that so many um, activists supported these what came to be extremely gerrymandered districts. Um, we now, um, 40 years later, look at this and say, wait a minute, by creating an, a district that is 80% African-American and which wanders all over the state in order to get enough people to put in that district, um, what we've done is we've taken a lot of reliable Democratic votes and put them in one district and created a lot more Republican districts than there might ordinarily be. And the other thing that's happened, of course, is that 
this, the new generation of African-American politicians from Barack Obama to Cory Booker to uh, Governor Deval Patrick, the former governor of Massachusetts, um, they, they win with white votes. I mean, in other words, the, the times have changed, and a lot of African-American activists say, well, of course we can win with white votes, and a lot of African-Americans are doing that. I mean, certainly DeVal Patrick, who had two terms here in Massachusetts, you know, um, Massachusetts has a very small African-American population. So, you know, most of his voters were white voters. Um, so that's... That, the combination of those two things has changed the way we are, are seeing these districts and has, I think, renewed interest in doing something about these extremely gerrymandered districts. So, And so how did this um, evolution bring us to the point where the Texas state legislature, the Democrats, notoriously fled to another state to avoid having to participate in redistricting and the Republicans sent the state police to drag him back. I mean, how did we come to that point? Well, we came to that point with with the two decades, really, of extreme uh, gerrymandering in the drawing of lines and the added precision, of course, that the information technology revolution gave us. In, in this regard, and that's where we found ourselves, so that when that happened in Texas, uh, Democrats were quite aware of the fact that they were being packed into a small number of districts, which would guarantee that they weren't going to have be able to control the legislature or the Congress or their congressional delegation for many, many years to come. And, and I think that realization um, caused that sort of sensational walkout. And so, um, you know, fast forward to 2010, which was a Republican wave election, and gerrymandering happened across, not gerrymandering, but redistricting happened across the mm-hmm. country in the years after that. Did that Republican wave election combined with this trend toward more partisan gerrymandering lead to a more distorted map after 2010, Matt? So if you want to kind of think about this in some different ways, uh, so how would those two things be connected? Uh, Those two things would be connected by if you have a wave election, as the term would come out, a lot of uh, states have uh, redistricting commissions or processes that are controlled by who is in charge of the state. So for instance, either a governor or a majority in Congress, something like that. Uh, So when you have this huge wave election, you'll see that a lot of states fall under the control of a a party who has something to do with redistricting. And as most people would probably surmise, if you have control of a process, why not benefit yourself, right? So there are about 24 states, I think, right now that are under uh, Republican uh, controlled redistricting processes. So you can imagine that that has something to do with um, how that lops, how that perceived lopside might come out. So part of my research actually looks at uh, simulating congressional districts, which is kind of interesting when you think about this. So right now, uh, the balance of power in the House of Representatives, that's the one that's most impacted by this. The Senate could be tangentially impacted by this, but not directly. Um, the 
balance of power is about 233 to 202. And I'm not talking about how many Republicans and Democrats sit in Congress right now. I'm talking about the voter share for president uh, in the districts that are established, right? So with the simulations that I've worked with in my research, um, that number is quite different. Uh, that number would be about 218 Republican to 217 Democrats. We're talking about a shift of about 15 seats. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that that's the product of, say, gerrymandering. That could be the product of geographic sorting. That could be the product of voter turnout issues, which has something to do with what I would say competitiveness of elections. I'm sure we'll get to that later. But that whole idea, they're all kind of connected in a way, but you can't, I can't really – say that one thing causes all of them. But you can imagine that the more states that a party controls in a redistricting process, the better off that state's going to be. But it may not necessarily be their fault. Yep. Hey, you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is gerrymandering. What's the big deal? Our guests are Matt Duby, Assistant Professor in Computer Information Systems at the University of of Augusta, and a University of Maine at Augusta, and Elaine Kmark, Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. And we were talking about um, whether the 2010 wave election had lit, led to um, more gerrymandering than we might have seen before. And I want to give Elaine a chance to comment on that before I move on to the next topic. So go ahead, Elaine. Oh, whether the 2021? 2010. 2010, 2010, thanks. 2010, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I mean, Matt, I, I think, let me just clarify, Matt hit the nail on the head. It's not a, it's not congressional elections that control this, it's state house elections. So what was hap- what's been happening in the last, um, certainly around 2010, was you had Republican governors and Republican state houses and those they obviously can control the redistricting process there are some states that have yielded this to independent commissions but most of the time this is done in the state legislature and it is still as it has always been an intensely political process so if you control the state house um, you control redistricting and the outcome of course in in recent years has been, and, and Matt's research is, is fascinating on this point, the outcome has been probably an exaggeration of Republican uh, strength. And so why, ha- why have there not been more court remedies until now? I mean, I know that there are some high-profile cases working their way up and through the Supreme Court now, and we can talk a little bit about those. But historically, the Supreme Court has not weighed in on these, have they, Elaine? No, they haven't. And and part of that is it goes to everything that has to do with politics and party politics. Um, The court has been historically reluctant to get in the middle of politics and get in the middle of how political parties organize their work. And so when it comes to primaries, the courts have sort of stepped back. Um, When it comes to redistricting, they haven't been very involved. But we'll see in this upcoming term whether or not they find um, some rationale for involvement. Can you, Elaine, just very briefly describe which are the cases that are coming before the court and what the basis of the arguments are? I, re- I know um, we can do a whole show on that, but just very briefly. 
Yeah, I, I let me. Now I'm having to do this from memory. I oh, think sorry. it's the North. Uh, Matt, help me out here. Is it North Carolina and Pennsylvania and yes. Wisconsin? Wisconsin as well. Oh, that's right. It's North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. And in all three of those, there are issues about how the lines are drawn and whether or not you are, um, whether or not the contiguity rule, which Matt speaks about in his research so well, um, is, is violated and what that might mean. Um, and so I think you're going to see in, now in Pennsylvania, by the way, the, the way the state Supreme Court redrew the districts has come to has resulted in a very funny outcome, which is that this big race we just had in Pennsylvania 18, which everybody was talking about because the Democrat won in a very uh, Republican Trump type district. That is a congressional district that's about to disappear right? Um, because of the at least the state-ordered redistricting. So you're going to have a lot of, uh, you know, arguments, and we'll see if the court gets involved in this. So Matt, uh, you may have a better sense of this. Well, I mean, the courts before have said, you know, we can't get involved because there's no clear rule. How would we ever tell? This is all political. Right. It, it seems like in the Wisconsin case, at least, the plaintiffs are arguing the sufficiency gap rule as a possible test for, you know, not whether perfectly drawn districts have come forward, but whether really badly redi- gerrymandered districts have yeah. come forward. Go ahead, Well, Matt. that's right. And we'll see again whether the court decides to uh, take this on. There's a long history of bad districts being drawn, starting with the original one, Eldridge, uh, Eldridge Jerry's. <laughs> right. And this, this, the court has never intervened. So go ahead, Matt. Yeah. Talk about the importance of the efficiency gap argument in that particular case and um, what you know about it. Okay. So let me first say by a to kind of extend what Elaine's talking about, one of the things that's really important to think about why courts might not intervene is that there's many different ways you could really consider this problem. So the efficiency gap is one way. It's a relatively modern thing, uh, but there's some other different ways as well. So what the efficiency gap thing gets to is that you have wasted votes is essentially the idea. So what is a wasted vote? A wasted vote would be um, each vote that I cast as a party in an election that I will lose. Okay, So the efficiency gap is the difference between Republican wasted votes essentially. So consider a two-party system. It could be a multiple-party system. Um, you have Republican wasted votes in democratically won districts and Democrat wasted votes in Republican won districts and you're subtracting the two of them and dividing by how many votes there are. So – the issue in Wisconsin, to my understanding, and of course I'm not a legal scholar, so I'm not going to really go too much into this. The issue in Wisconsin is that that efficiency gap is really, really high, uh, relatively speaking. So scholars will say something like 7% is a really high efficiency gap. Wisconsin comes in above that uh, in favor of the Republican side. So you have more wasted Democratic votes than you do Republican votes, and that's the that's the idea. And I just want to clarify that Wisconsin's uh, case is not about its federal districts. It's about its state districts, mm-hmm. state Senate, I believe. So that's oh, the that's a good point. Yeah. That's versus Pennsylvania and uh, North Carolina are about the federal congressional congressional districts. districts. Yep. Good point. So. So, I mean, so this efficiency gap may be an oversimplification and maybe we would never really want to draw districts using that as a single measure. But is there a chance that the 
the court might pick that up as a way to determine whether something really egregious has happened here? So I think that part of that is uh, I think that's one of the simpler ways to kind of think about the real problem. I think for a long time, people have been concerned about shapes you see in a map. So like the earmuffs in Chicago or Donald Duck kicking Goofy in Pennsylvania or the uh, pterodactyl, the pterodactyl in, in uh, Maryland, Maryland <laughs> which is a pretty famous one about Baltimore. Uh, there's lots of districts that have like this cloud-like formation thing that, you know, how you look up in the sky and you see a cloud and you say, oh, that looks like this, right? Uh, But those are symptomatic things, I would say. And when you start looking at an efficiency gap or something like that, you're starting to talk about more of the real things. Now, that might not be necessarily the best way to go, but that's a step that might be in the right direction. Another way you could think about it is, How often am I breaking up communities? So Mm -hmm. when you look at research that I do, that's where we focus our work is in the likelihood that a community is broken up by a redistricting process. So we focus on how um, areas are connected in space. So there are census units. So we talk about the census and reapportionment. So we're looking at uh, the least number of divisions that you can make while following the state's rules based on whether they have to have majority-minority representation or things like that or have to prioritize their county borders, these sorts of things, which gets into the idea of nearness. So what's the likelihood that me and my neighbor, my neighbor community, vote in the same district? And I want that to be as high as possible going forward. So that could change the way that people see this because it's, it's more connected to where you live. You think about geography. So there's different ways to attack this problem. Right. And I, um, I mean, I, I've heard other measures being talked about, Elaine, and maybe I'll ask you to comment on some of these. I mean, I've heard something about a symmetry, symmetry test, the efficiency gap, tests for compactness, contiguity, competitiveness, um, mm-hmm. respect for political boundaries. I mean, it seems like there are so many factors at play here. Go ahead. Yeah. And, and you know, one of the questions, I think, if the court as the court gets into this, I think what they're going to look at is, are any of these strategies that have traditionally been used or been violated in redistricting, do they impinge on people's right to vote? Um, you know, I mean, one of the problems that comes from the efficiency gap is that there are people who simply feel uh, disenfranchised and for all practical purposes are, because mm-hmm. if you are you know, one of two Democrats in a district with 30 Republicans, um, your vote's never going to matter. Right. And so that's the that, those are the sorts of things that could come up in the in the court's decisions. Um, the other question on the on you know con- contiguity is really you know shouldn't representatives in Congress represent um, geographic entities that they can help with, you know, and have something to do with? Or should they be representing a demographic entity, which is what a lot of the gerrymandering does, is it creates entities that are demographic, but not geographic. Yeah. And these are kind of, these are kind of complicated problems. Um, and as you correctly noted, there are a lot of different ways to justify or criticize uh, gerrymandering. And, like, wouldn't the perfect map sort of optimize across all of these different measures, Matt? 
Uh, yes. So one of the things that I think the biggest issue in this whole area is that one about competitiveness. I think that's the huge, the biggest factor because the competitiveness one leads to th- the feeling of disenfranchisement. If you, if don't, you think if, about it, if you it. don't have it, yeah. So to yeah. put this in perspective, about twenty uh, percent of congressional districts in the United States right now are within a sixty to forty margin. Okay. So that's still a pretty big margin. Yeah, that's still a pretty big margin. But if you think about having to answer to a 40 percent minority, that can really hurt you in trying to be reelected. Right. So that's a that's a big margin. But if you think about 20 percent being the product of human led processes, what happens when you let a computer try to do the processes that the humans are trying to wait a minute? I want to just pause on that. What you just said a minute more, 20 percent of congressional districts are competitive within a 40 to 60 percent margin. That Mm -hmm. means 80 percent are not competitive outside that margin. Correct. So in 80 percent of the districts, the winner is going to get more than 60 percent. In theory, that's the idea. Yeah. The presidential vote. Wow. So let's think about what happens when a computer does this. If a computer does this following the rules of the states and you run this hundreds, thousands of times, the number of competitive districts or the percentage of competitive districts goes up to around 45 or 50 percent. So if you think about that kind of statistic, and I'm not saying who wins that district. I'm not saying right. it's a Republican district or a Democratic district. But it but would be decided huge, within a narrow margin. Yeah, a narrower margin, right. which has a lot to do with what you see in Congress right now. So when you think about this lack of bipartisan behavior in Washington right now, a lot of that can stem from the idea that, geez, I'm going to go back to my election in two years and I'm going to have no problem winning it. So I'm going to toe the party line because there's no danger to me versus these other people who are in that 20 percent have a much more reality check to say I need to do what's best for my area because if I alienate all these people – I'm going to have a hard time coming back. And yeah. if I value being there, then yeah. that's a problem. Go ahead, Elaine. Jump in. Yeah, let me let me add to that because th- this is really the become the crux of the matter. The All of those non-competitive districts, if you think about the incentives that an individual member of Congress faces, in every single one of them, what they worry about is not the general election. Mm-hmm. They worry about their primary. Because if you're consistently winning, say you're winning with 70% of the vote all the time, right, then the way you're going to get beat is not by somebody from the other party. You're going to get beat by somebody within your own party. What that tends to do is create an incentive for you to make sure that the most committed party activists, who tend to be, by the way, on the uh, more to the right and more to the left, of most voters, you tend to pay a lot of attention to what they say because you don't want to be primaried. And that term is a term that in political science people are still arguing about, but I can tell you that on Capitol Hill it's very prevalent very every day in the minds of every incumbent. Um, because their districts are because most districts are so safe, What incumbents fear is somebody from the left in the Democratic Party or somebody from the right in the Republican Party 
going into a primary and saying, your member of Congress is not sufficiently pure and, you know, ideologically pure, and therefore they should be beat. Now, the fact that that doesn't happen very much doesn't mean that it has no effect on congressional behavior. And, and in fact, at Brookings, we're working on some research right now involving interviews with members of Congress to show how they themselves think of this. I want so to, the fact that it's a rare it's rare doesn't mean that it doesn't have an impact. I want to come back to some of the downsides of this kind of non-competitive district map drawing, but we're just going to take a quick break here and say that um, this is the Democracy Forum. You're tuned to WERUFM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters, and our guests this morning are Matt Duby, Assistant Professor in Computer Information Systems at the University of Maine at Augusta, and Elaine K. Mark, Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. At this point in the conversation, I'd like you to join the conversation. Our topic today is gerrymandering. What's the big deal? If you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation now by calling toll-free 866-625-9378 or 469-0500 if you're calling locally. We have only one listener line open, so be patient if you get a busy signal. If you do get through, please take your answer off the line so that others can also join the call. Don't wait till the last minute. Get your call in early. So let's come back to that question about the uh, non-competitive districts in 80% of the congressional districts around the country. And Elaine was saying that that has the downside of creating a more partisan delegation. What are the other public ills, I guess I would say, that come from that kind of a map? Okay, so uh, the the first one that kind of speaks to my mind is the idea of, we'll go back to the majority-minority districts. So of those 80% that I'm talking about, um, you have about... 120 or so districts in the United States right now would be classified as majority minority. Now, some of them are just natural occurrences. So California has like 40 of them, right? And this is just because of the natural demographics who lives there, right? But um, 120 of those are all majority minority districts. And if you think about it, those districts have become a lot of what we're talking about here. So of those 80% non-competitive, which turns out to be about 300 and something federally, roughly a third of them are majority-minority districts, if you think about that. So think about what that does to minority representation. Think about the idea that – I'll use the one in Illinois as the example because this one is kind of an interesting one – that the two pockets that are – if you've ever seen this district, it looks like a pair of earmuffs – the two pockets that we're talking about here are two different groups of Hispanic voters, two very different groups of Hispanic voters. Okay, each one of so that whole district is about seventy-five percent Hispanic. So you're saying it was Cubans on one end and Puerto Ricans. I'm, I'm on pretty the, sure that's yeah, what it is, right. but two very different groups. And if you know something ideologically about them, they wouldn't necessarily favor the same sort of candidates. But that was drawn by a Democratic commission in a Democratic hotbed right around Chicago. So this is one of those things we talk about partisan gerrymandering. That's a little different that you have a Democratic commission that has kind of changed the dynamics of who's going to represent the Democratic Party. So it's not even losing seats in Congress. It's doing different things. But this idea of noncompetitiveness there means that I have to work – I can have one representative instead of possibly having two 
out of that area. So that's one of those things that I urge you all to consider. So they've kind of packed the minorities into this one district where they might have had two representatives mm-hmm. one way. They're only getting one re- representative yeah. this way. So you have a you have a pack. So packing, cracking, two terms to get thrown right. out there. So I want to make sure all the listeners know what we're talking about here. So packing is the idea of consolidating a lot of voters into or a lot of things of the same type, whether that be Democratic votes, Republican votes, or a majority minority group into one area, okay, or one district. That's the idea of packing is consolidation. Versus cracking would be called dispersion. So the idea that I take this big group of things that I have and I split them. So a famous example of this is in Ohio. Uh, So in 2000, uh, you have the 2000 census, which is going to be the precursor to the Republican wave that will come up in 2010. Uh, That redistricting plan goes in force in 2002 and will carry for the next five congressional elections. So what ends up happening is Columbus, Ohio, which is one of the 15 biggest cities in the United States, has one of the largest universities in the United States, Ohio State, for those of you who aren't familiar. It's a very democratic city. It's had a democratic mayor for a long time. That city sent a grand total of one Democrat to Congress in that entire five election cycle. And how did they send that Democrat to Congress, do you ask? So – They sent that Democrat to Congress because a Republican seat holder retired. The governor was Democratic at the time, appointed a Democrat to hold that seat, and then promptly in the next election was removed. So in the in the map that was drawn after the two thousand census, Columbus got cracked. In other words, it got its Democratic district divided up into three parts where the Democrats got diluted with Republicans so that Republicans won, even though the district was predominantly or even though the city was predominantly democratic. Yeah, so that produced actually that produced three competitive districts. If you think about it, this is kind of the oddity of this. Produced three competitive districts held by someone you wouldn't expect would have held a district in that area. And by the way, all of those districts were compactly drawn. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those things you have to worry about when we look at shapes that the shape isn't the issue. The issue is how your consolidating people yeah, because the people are the thing that matter in representation it is a democracy if we think about it you want to add to this elaine what are like why are we even worried about this what are the problems that come with this kind of extreme well we're worried about it we're worried about it because it appears that this era of extreme um district drawing the extreme gerrymandering as you called it is contributing to the polarization in our politics um, Senate uh, Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, the Demo- uh, Democratic senator from New York, wrote a, wrote a piece in the New York Times oh, a couple of years ago where he basically said, look, what's happening in our politics because of gerrymandering and because of primary um, is we have situations where um, 30% of the 60% is controlling our politics. And no wonder everybody's unhappy with Congress and unhappy with what's going on in the country. And no wonder we're not getting anything done because there isn't an incentive to compromise. If your incentive in Congress is to keep your 30 percent of intense activists who are going to vote in your primaries um, happy, then you really don't have an incentive to reach across the aisle, to compromise, to do 
the sort of things that have been missing from Congresses in recent years. And so that's why all of this matters. Now, I, you know, I know that Matt has, has written about this as well. Gerrymandering isn't the only um, problem here. Um, there also is the tendency of Americans to, in an increasingly mobile country, to sort themselves by not really political party but by lifestyle so that you do manage to get communities that, um, because they're moved to live together, they have a certain partisan cast to them. Um, you know, I remember in 2004 the Republican strategist saying, if you go into a neighborhood and you look in the gara- open garages and there's golf clubs, um, you're in a Republican neighborhood. And if there's a, you're in a neighborhood where there's young women carrying yoga mats down the street, um, you're in a Democratic neighborhood. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, now that's an oversimplification, but obviously there are there's a sorting of people. People like to live near people like them. And But and, shouldn't those people then be able to elect representatives that reflect their values? Seems like they should. Well, of course they should. But here's what happens. is, And again, we have to go to primaries because primaries are the other part of this equation. Congressional primaries, which we just had the first in Texas um, two weeks ago, um, and we're going to have an Illinois primary the next week. Congressional primaries are notoriously low turnout affairs. In fact, you regularly get between 5 and 20% of the voters in the district participating in a primary. I mean, just they're, they're really obscure events. They're not publicized usually. Uh, nobody writes about them. They're not covered on television. Uh, don't confuse them with presidential primaries, which are high visibility events. Congressional primaries are low-visibility events. Because they're such low-visibility events, they have very few people participating in them. And the people who do tend to be the most committed and most ideological party activists. And that's where the polarization comes in. Those are the people that vote in these obscure elections year after year after year. And that's what causes a Republican congressman to always be looking to his right and a Democratic congressman always to be looking to his left. And what about those people who live in non-competitive districts? I mean, maybe they aren't even inspired to vote at all. Yeah, so that's well, one, of the, that's right. that's one that's of the things right. you have to worry about. Yeah. Yeah. So what are the solutions here? And I guess maybe before we even get to solutions, let me spend a minute talking about Maine, because Maine is not a highly gerrymandered state by most measures, is it, Matt? So that's going to depend on how you look at it, right? So when we say this term gerrymandering, what are we referring to? We're referring to someone as advantaged, either a person being an incumbent, we're talking about a party, we're talking about a group of people, something like that. So depending how you want to phrase that, you could see this in different ways. So Having lived in Maine all my life, I can tell you that Maine is a state that is relatively moderate, if you think about it. Uh, we've had, in my lifetime, for the lion's share of my life, we had two uh, Democrats in House seats and we had two Republicans in the Senate seats. Okay, So not many states could say anything like that, right? So 
When you look at the current climate of Maine and you see that you have one Democrat and one Republican in the House, it kind of makes sense because you have a 50-50 kind of share of the population. Maine and Nebraska are the two states that can actually split their electoral college votes because of this. So it's actually this; those are two states that actually have an impact on the presidential election in that way because of how these lines are drawn. Now, I'm not going to say where I live or anything like that, but if you take a look at a map of the congressional districts in Maine, which were, by the way, drawn by a bipartisan commission, so you can imagine why you would have one Republican and one Democrat uh, coming out of that, you'll see that um, there's a little part of District 1 that goes right up the Kennebec River and grabs the two biggest cities in that region, Augusta and Waterville. Yet the rest of Kennebec County is split into District 2, right? So if you think about this, so the representatives I remember were Tom Allen and uh, Mike Mishu. Mike Mishu ran for governor. So you're saying there's a tiny little bit of packing going on there. I, I'm not going to say whether or not that's the case, but you can infer what you want right. with that. But if you think about it, why would District 1 extend up there? So yeah. what they're, what that does from the Bipartisan Commission's perspective is it gives your Republican um, constituents in a state much more of an opportunity to in possibly the win the second district, yeah. right? We do have a caller on the line. Go ahead. Who Who's calling? Where are you from? And what's your question? Uh, my name is Tom. I'm actually from Richmond, Vermont, but I have a house in Stuben. Hi, Tom. Well. Thanks for calling. Go um, ahead. So my concern about gerrymandering is that it's only one prong of a uh, concerted campaign that started about 30 years ago, and it was not a hidden agenda uh, within the Republican Party, as I understand it, but it was actually very vocally promoted um, uh, out front. Um, and it seems to have at least five legs to it that I know of. Uh, and gerrymandering um, is a very effective one, but it's not the only one by any stretch of the imagination. Um, one involves, uh, so I don't know the correct names on this, but one involves, one involves voter discounting before... <laughs> before they are able to register. Uh, and another involves vote deletions, which is like the worst of which was the hanging chads, but whatever way you do it, you know, like these votes cannot count, so make sure they don't. Uh, another one would, of course, be Citizens United simply, you know, flooding the political process with money and uh, and the last one, uh, which to me is almost more concerning than all the others, is uh, electronic uh, machine hacking, which is net. You know, it can't be proved at this point, at, but it just so happens that Diebold is, you know, in charge of those machines, and you know, it is it is a matter of the record that those votes can be flipped especially if they're close. So you know. I, thanks for your question, Tom. I've got voter suppression, vote deletion, money in politics, uh, electronic hacking and gerrymandering, five prongs of a well-coordinated campaign by the Republican Party to hijack elections. What, what That's about what that? I got. Yeah, what about that, Elaine? Well, I think a lot of those are well um well said. I think that gerrymandering, he's right, gerrymandering isn't the only problem here. 
I would add to that the weakness of political parties and the emergence of all of these super PACs, which, unlike political parties, are not accountable to anyone and tend to be run by billionaires, and we don't necessarily know who they are. Um, and I think we have intentionally weakened political parties, seen parties as the problem, when in fact parties, and this is a little bit counter to conventional wisdom, parties are the solution to a lot of these things because they have an ongoing institutional interest in um, winning elections, even in contested districts. So I would I would add that, but I think all of these things have been going on. Um, I think we are newly concerned after the 2016 election and the and the Russian interference. We are newly concerned with the security of our elections systems. And only yesterday did the Trump administration finally impose sanctions on Russia for the hacking of the of the the hacks and the manipulation in 2016. Um, I, I think I would add to his list this new problem, which is a new form of voter suppression. We used to think of voter suppression as something that happened through um, tough voter laws, etc., and people being turned away at the polls. Um, what the Russians did in 2016 was they mounted a, a very sophisticated campaign geared at African-American voters to tell them that their vote didn't matter and that they shouldn't vote and that Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were the same. And there were a variety of messages um, that were very untrue and, and designed to depress that vote. Those were targeted messages. They went out from bots and they went out in the millions and they went out under fake um, groups like um, woke woke black and blacktivists, which turned out to be um, groups that were originated in St. Petersburg with this internet research agency. So we're, we're facing a new threat to our democracy that I think is even goes beyond what the a gentleman who called in. Um, articulated. And, and gerrymandering is part of that puzzle and sort of, sort of weaving back around, even though we here in Maine may not be in a very highly gerrymandered state, we are part of a broader fabric of democracy that is being threatened by this being done in other states, if I may summarize the conversation. There's yep. one other thing I think I'd add to this too, and it has to do with the primaries. Um, in Maine, to the best of my knowledge, I'm an independent voter. I'm not allowed to vote in a primary, right? right? So there are other states that do allow independents to vote in their primaries. What if you allowed independents to vote in the primaries of either party? We did that show last month. Yeah. So if you think right. about you think about that idea, right? <laughs> that that's a really important way to help try to dilute the power of the extremity of the parties in a state like that. Well. Uh, just one last reminder here. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters. We're coming to the last uh, 10 minutes of our show, but our guests this morning are Matt Duby, Assistant Professor in Computer Information Systems at the University of Maine in Augusta, Andy Lane Kmark, Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. Before we went, run out of time today, I do want to turn the conversation to s- solutions. That, like, How can states do this better. Some have been enacting nonpartisan 
redistricting commissions through citizen initiative measures, and I know that's something that um, that people are looking at. Can they get nonpartisan redistricting commissions? Is that the way? Um, what are some of the things that um, people might have at their disposal to fix this, Elaine? Well, I think there's a variety of proposals. I think the I think the nonpartisan redistricting commissions help and are a good idea, and I hope that more states do them. But remember that this is controlled by politicians, so you and they have a significant interest in redistricting. So um, it's uh, it's going to require significant citizen activism to you know, pry this power out of the hands of the of the state legislatures, where, by the way, the Constitution vests it. So you, they've, they've got a lot going for them. So it's, it's hard to get some of these nonpartisan um, redistricting um, commissions. Um, I, I would also say that there's a broader issue here, and that that is the issue of increasing turnout in congressional primaries. So that Congress, so that people in these overwhelmingly Democratic or Republican districts um, come to realize that the real show is in their primary, and they ought to participate in their primary. Um, and I think if we can get turnout up in some of these congressional primaries, um, that will help mitigate against the feeling that a lot of incumbents have that they've got to be always watching their far right or their far left. And so increasing turnout in primaries is really, I think, key to this. And then finally, I would say we need to strengthen political parties. Hmm. And we need to strengthen We can do that through the federal election laws. Right now, a political party is treated just like a mysterious um, political action committee. And, and we need to rewrite that balance because parties are more uh, – are, are, in it for the long haul in the way that these mysterious groups that appear and disappear during election seasons are not. What would you like to add to that, Matt, in terms of what tools are available available to us to fix this gerrymandering problem? So statistically speaking, I will say that the um, the mixed or independent commissions, depending on how you want to phrase that from different instantiations of that, uh, tend to not advantage states as much as uh, the partisan ones do. So I think that's a good step in the right direction. Um, I do believe that the more competitive the districts are, the more solutions you will find because you'll have people that are more willing to work together. Now, there's two ways you get to that. One is you increase the competitiveness of – Keep going. Right, one is you increase the competitiveness of primaries. The other is you also think about the competitiveness of the general election itself for the seat. So both of those things can help in different ways. So there's it, – it's a complex problem. It really yeah. is and there's so many things you have to worry about when you deal with complex problems, which takes an interdisciplinary approach to kind of see well, the solutions to that. We have one last caller. Go ahead. Let, let us know your name, where you're from and go ahead with your question. Well, this would be Tom again. And hey, Tom. I, I just want to add – I just wanted to weigh in on the solution side of things. Um, I agree with Matt 100 percent that uh, – uh, being able to vote in primaries uh, for non-party category, you know, for non-party people is important. If they can't do that, then their their vote is marginalized. And I got to say that with all of this 
uh, Facebook engineering of vote opinions, it's particularly important that those swing votes be in there. So like in Vermont, you can vote. So I would say that's 100%. And the other thing is, keep your eye on the horizon here, because the campaign that's going on is really one of of alienation on every level so that basically you can't you can't remember why you're doing things like because there's so because there's so many areas that are engineered to fail at this point in terms of the democratic process like democracy now is like is is it about democracy i don't know do we have democracy i can't remember Mm -hmm. but the point is that we have to start putting our time into uh, global, you know, not global warming, but climate change. You know, that's where our focus needs to be. So if governments can't do it, we've got to figure out ways to do it ourselves. Well, I love closing on that thought that citizen activism is where this has to come from. And it, and it fits into the gerrymandering process or redistricting um, legislatures around the country or nonpartisan commissions will start doing this after the 2020 census. And we as citizens, um, I hope you will both say, have a role to play in making sure that it's done well. Matt, go ahead. We're coming up to the end of time, so I want to give you each a couple minutes to make some closing comments here. Yeah, so I would largely agree with that is the biggest driver of all of this is we the people. The first three words of the Constitution, we the people. We the people have the answer to this by participating in the political process everywhere that we can. Because if we do participate and enough of us believe that redistricting needs to be reformed, then we're going to be sending people to Congress with the power to deal with that issue substantively. So I would say that that is an important thing. I would also say that uh, keep your eyes on the horizon for different ways of thinking. Uh, So something that happens all the time in scholarly communities is that people become sort of this one-track way of solving a problem and they're not necessarily willing to listen to other ways to deal with these problems. So I don't care what field you come from. I'm a computer scientist. I'm a geographer. I'm not a political scientist. And these are things I got interested to in because it's one of the most important forms of a map in the world is the idea of determining who gets to have what say in how they are governed. Elaine, what about you? A few parting thoughts here. Um, I think that everyone's the caller, Tom and, and Matt, have made very interesting and good comments. And yes, we need to start participating more if we're going to change this. And I and I actually think you saw in Pennsylvania last week an enormous turnout. Um, you, we saw enormous. We saw record-breaking turnout in the Texas congressional primaries um, on March the first. So I think people are realizing that they just can't be inattentive to the political system if they want it to work for them. That's great. And Matt, I'm so excited about some of the data tools that are coming to bear on this process. It seems like um, here's a way in which technology really could be helpful to us in the future. Absolutely. So we talk about, you hear buzzwords like big data and you hear buzzwords like data science and things like this. Uh, those are Those are tools in a tool belt. They're tools for good. They're also tools for harm. So when we think about what people do with tools, it's not necessarily can a tool do something. It's, it still comes back to the person. What are you willing to do with it? 
So when you think about the census, the Census Bureau has lots of data through something called the American Community Survey, which allows you to see demographics and all these sorts of things. And you can look at voter trends. You can do the thing about the sorting and the population, which I've done. Uh, people are interested in that. Check that out. Uh, but there are lots of different pieces of the big data revolution that really impact every aspect of society, including the idea of social media, which is tied in that as well. All right. We're out of time today. This was a great conversation. Thank you to our guest this morning, Matt Doobie, Assistant Professor in Computer Information Systems at the University of Maine in Augusta, and Elaine K. Mark, Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERUFM. Thank you to Joel Brown. I was going to say Joel Brown. Thank you to Joel, our engineer this morning at WERU. Thank you to our listeners. We'll be continuing this conversation on um, uh, participatory democracy on the third Friday next month in April when I think we're going to be talking about ranked choice voting. We'll see you here next month. Thank you so much. WERU comes from our generous listeners. Thank you. Do you want to learn how to-